Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm just thrilled to be joined by Carrie Arsenal. She wears many hats professionally as a freelance book critic, as book review editor at Orion Magazine, and as contributing editor at LitHub. And she's here today wearing yet another hat, that of debut author. We are celebrating the publication of her breathtaking work of memoir, investigative journalism, environmental justice history, and so, so much more. The book is called Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains, and it's coming out on September 1st from St. Martin's Press. Carrie Arsenal, welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Braided through the heart of this book are, in your words, two explorations, disease and family. And you write that you would, quote, catch glimpses of one as you marked steps in the other. How did you come to embark on these explorations and how did they parallel each other? So I started um, genealogy research back in 2001 based on a newspaper clipping I found at my parents' house about how my grandfather died. Um, He died of metastatic, metastatic, God, I can't say that, stomach cancer. (laughs) Let's just say that. Uh, And I wanted to find out more about him. I didn't really know much about him, where he was from or anything. And the the obituary um, gave some incorrect information. I came come to find out a few years later. Um, so I thought, huh, I wonder what other information was incorrect. So I just started really digging into my family history. And I don't know if you – have you ever seen a genogram? Do you know what that is? I haven't. No, you mentioned it in the book. What does that look like? Did I? I can't remember. It, so a genogram is- It was is a family really, tree, but, but but more complicated, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It 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 It's like a pictorial display of a of family family relationships and medical history and even social, social history of, you know, how people relate to each other in a community. And I was also at the time reading Heirs of General Practice by John McPhee, which he, mm. he talks about that in because he's- um, He's talking to Maine doctors, actually, Maine doctors. And I thought that made a lot more sense to what I was doing. You know, I, I saw this, I saw my grandfather die of cancer. I didn't know where he's from, what other records could be wrong. So I just decided to embark on um, finding the correct records. And I guess the disease. You know, it started right from the beginning. That I knew he had cancer. I knew he had died from that, but I didn't really know to the extent of, of how connected cancer was to our family and our town's history. And just the more I I kept finding out, the the, the closer to cancer I became. Until they were just like paralleling each other, right? You know, very close. Um, and I had met Terry Martin. I think you read that in the book too. This she was a yeah. former nurse in our town. And she and her husband, who was Dr. Martin, Dr. Edward Martin, um, 
they did a lot of research about the town's disease, and he was very active in trying to get people to pay attention to the high cancer rates in our town. And they were also both very involved with genealogy and the Acadian history of our town. So meeting her was something pretty special, too, or re-meeting her. I knew her as a kid, but of course she was a parent, you know, she wasn't like my friend like she is now. (laughs) There's several characters like that in the book. Yeah, they kind of yeah. are re-meeting. And in some ways, the, the whole book is about kind of re, re-seeing what you were, we were living with all along. Um, you know, full disclosure, you and I are, are strangers to each other, but we grew up along the same river. Um, I'm yes. from another pair of Maine mill towns. You're from, from Mexico and, and Rumford there, and I'm from Lewiston-Auburn. Textile mills, not paper, but just 40 miles down the river, um, Androscoggin River. And, I, and so I, really, I found the way you describe your youthful perceptions of the environmental health dangers in your area, very relatable. You know, you write in the book that practically everyone always called our community Cancer Valley, yet nobody ever took the nickname seriously. And you also at one point remember humorously <laughs> how sports teams from other high schools would roll in on their buses into your town and they'd make jokes about how the whole, all the air smells like farts. And, you know, I remember, you know, I was one of those kids on one of those buses making those exact jokes. I'm sure about, you were. <laughs> Rumford coming into cross-country skiing and all these things. And, and, uh, you know, and I also, and Andrew Scoggin, you know, I, I, you know, I grew up knowing it as polluted, right? I didn't, I didn't know it as being kind of nationally notoriously polluted until grad school, but I, you know, we grew up, you know, I remember, I remember there's an, you know, in the child mind that sticks the story of we were allowed to eat, you know, I think the EPA or the main department of environmental protection said you could eat one fish a year out of the river. That was the limit. Yeah. And it's, yeah. You know, one of the things I think it's still the limit. That, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the idea that, like, of course you would never eat any fish out of a river. You can just eat one <laughs> fish out of, but we would think about it all the time. Right. And so I knew it was polluted. Yet, you know, yeah, 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 it was not, it was never like, you know, and I was a young little, you know, youthful environmentalist. I was you know, celebrating Earth Day and I was watching Captain Planet, you know, but my environmental <laughs> politics at that age were never directed toward local things, you know, the river at all. It was always, you know, save the whales or Amazon so deforestation or, or the ozone layer, you know, and, and you write in the book, there, there was a line here that really stuck with me where you said you had been a bad witness to what had been going on, just right mm-hmm. around. And I feel the exact same way. And so I wonder, you know, why do you think that problem had been able to hide in plain sight? In your town. Yeah, that's, uh, I think if, when our government, our leaders, our elected officials, the scientists, I mean, as Terry Martin and Doc Martin faced, um, when they start telling, even the EPA, or maybe the main DEP, they start telling us everything's okay over and over again, we start to believe them. I mean, a lot of things got quashed, pushed under the carpet. I mean, like the for instance, in the end, spoiler alert, the EPA's cancer <laughs> assessment on dioxin. Um, you know, if you hide something like that or don't hide, they're not hiding it. They just put it on a shelf no. and they're never going to publish it. But if, if you're going to put something like that on a shelf and never publish it, then the public is an uninf- uninformed public. So um, when you're uninformed and then people are always also telling you everything's okay – um, at the same time, you're also, you know, telling yourself a little story, right? We all wake up in the morning and think, if, if, I mean, if we woke up and said, okay, everything I eat today could give me cancer. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to be par- <laughs> paralyzed. So yeah. you make these micro decisions about what you can do about for you, your family, your community, and, you know, you make choices if you can. Um, and you know, humans adapt too. we learn to live with things There's white noise all around us. And, and I think part of trying to write this book in a way that made 
something that's kind of unseen, like this, what's happening in our town, try to make it feel urgent was, was part of the problem and part of the reason I wanted to write it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. And, you, and, and in trying to, you know, even investigate causes of death, you really you try to immerse yourself in the science and try to get some clarity here on, on, on what, what caused what. Um, you right, also because that, nobody was telling me. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. No, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody was telling me the information I wanted to hear, so I would get buried in these science reports. I mean, I don't know anything. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm no scientist. Um, sure, but you, you really tried. Um, but then one of the tricky things about environmental health, right, is that, and you write it really nicely here. You say science is both the ultimate venue of facts and it's also the greatest source of uncertainty. What does that right. mean? And, and how did you relate to uncertainty in the research? Yeah, so scientists are, are trained to be skeptical, inconclusive, and cautious about definitive things. They're always, you know, quick to point out that research is more research is necessary. I mean, they can't really be conclusive unless all all evidence points to something like pollution causes cancer, for example, or more specifically, yeah. like my father's cancer um, was caused by his job in the mill, and so on. They can't. How how can you possibly find that conclusive? Because you'd have to, you know, you'd have to have some kind of little something attached to my father from the day he was born, yeah. you know, and then monitor everything he eats and smoked, or you know what I mean? There's there's just no yeah, way yeah. possible that they can be completely conclusive. I mean, there are some things, but I think that's where that comes from. And what I mean by scientific uncertainty is. Um, you know, it allows for a range of possible values. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't mean scientists don't know anything. They just don't know everything, you know? Um, yeah. But as it relates also to the book is, you know, I thought a lot about um, how people live in this town and a lot of small towns across the U.S. that are factory towns or one, you know, one factory town one horse towns, whatever you call it, um, mm -hmm. they live under this sort of amb ambiguity, this, you know, if, if, if there's like, it, are you familiar with Love Canal, the yeah, New sure. York environmental disaster, right? People there mm -hmm. were, you know, they were told one thing and told another and then nothing at all by people who were party to the deeds, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's that same thing. They, they just, they kept, it kept accentuating the overall feeling of suspicion to the people that live there. And that's, which is debilitating, you know, it's, it's, it, that's debilitating. And then you're already worrying about your job because, you know, manufacturing's on the decline. Papermaking certainly is. Um, and then you're worried about your health because like at least one person in your, your family has cancer or something. I mean, humans generally prefer unambiguous situations, right? We don't, Yeah. We and we like to operate on what evidence we can depend on so that we can make good choices. Like I was saying earlier, if we're, if, if, if studies are stuck on a shelf, how can we make a decision about how to act on those studies? So it's all, that's all tied in. in and I kept thinking about that, how humans can live under ambiguous situations. And, um, you know, they, they start, they start to deploy these coping mechanisms. I know, um, you know, I did just very briefly, I'm not going to be an expert here, but uh, uh, some, a little environmental sociology here, but people yeah. do, they, 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 
deploy coping mechanisms. I mean, one way is, like I said, we tell ourselves stories to live, right? Mm -hmm. um, people can develop hypervigilance. They can blame. They can, they can come up with non-empirical belief systems or PTSD is one way, you know, or there's a whole host of things that sociologically can happen when, if you live under a constant state of ambiguity. Can you imagine? I mean, we're kind of going through mm -hmm. that now a little bit, right? I'm, yeah. I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, everybody's talking about the health, you know, the bodily health, and it's important. We don't want people to die of COVID-19, but there's going to be some fallout from the mental health of this, living under this curtain of ambiguity. I think it's going to be devastating. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I'm such a, I'm so fun to hang out with. <laughs> Well, there's, uh, so you mentioned, you mentioned Love Canal and there's, you know, and there's, you know, I, I think what the book doesn't seem to try to want to do is say, oh, we need to put Mexico and Rumford, Maine up in the pantheon of toxic communities alongside Warren County and Times, you know, Beach and, and Love Canal, it, even though there's plenty of continuity in those stories, it's, there's a sort of sense of like, this is, this is a broad thing that, you know, a lot of communities, there's a countless communities that have. Yeah, countless. Yeah, countless, yeah, but also like that's that's kind of the problem too is that there are countless yeah. communities and they're nothing that nothing, it doesn't make as good TV, right? Like my story right. is not is not a good TV. You know, how are they going to put this on the news? You know, kind of yeah. except yeah. for through my book, but but mm -hmm. how do you make a news event about it? So it's it doesn't make good TV, so it doesn't get a lot of attention. So therefore, that's another way it's forgotten. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's let's. I, I would like to like maybe dwell a bit on what's specific about Rumford in Mexico, and and, and and try to let's let's get some headlines right now um, to understand for for listeners yeah. what you know what what were the dangers, and so for for your dad and 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 for so many like him and his grand and your grandfather, what so what's so dangerous about making paper in in, in the way they have in in your town? Oh yeah, so paper the bleaching paper creates a byproduct called a, a family of dioxins and. And it's one of the most dangerous um, chemicals known to humankind, um, dioxins. And up until the 1990s, they made paper using elemental chlorine as a bleach process. And then in the 1990s, it switched over to elemental chlorine-free process. That doesn't mean it's free of chlorine. It just means it's free of elemental chlorine. So <laughs> before that, it created a lot of dioxin, which... Um, you know, dioxin is bioaccumulative. As it goes up the food chain, it gets stronger and more toxic. Um, so things that were, and it has a half-life, I think it's up to 11 years or something like that. Mm. Uh, so it was created and it went into our environment and it gets into the fish and then we eat the fish. And that's why in our towns, Lewiston and Auburn and Mexico and Rumford, they said, don't eat more than one fish a year because... You get one. full of dioxin, get <laughs> um, but that's that was bad advice. I think. I mean, one fish um, full of dioxin. I don't know. I just it's not a good idea. I mean, and then those you know, the dioxins go down into Mary Meeting Bay, and they go out into the ocean, and gets into the lobster, and it gets in. You know, I mean, so in the 1990s, anyway, they changed the process, and then uh, the dioxin load decreased significantly, almost to like immeasurable amounts, but it, but dioxins are so dangerous that even in those small amounts, they're still dangerous. And we still have the load that we're all dealing with today in our bodies. 
And like I said, if a fish eats it and you eat the fish, okay, you have, you know, it, it bioaccumulates. And then say you're a breastfeeding mother and you feed mm-hmm. your baby, um, apparently the breastfeeding, breast milk, this is going to horrify all the mothers right now, but <laughs> get, get 77% times the recommended dioxin load. This is from the uh-huh. EPA. So it doesn't matter that they stopped the processes or, or almost stopped the processes. It's still being created. We still have the stuff that's in the environment. I mean, that's the that's the brief outline of it. You know, yeah. cows. It, it's in it's in it's in mostly in fatty products like cows and eggs and cheese and you know their byproducts, butter and fish and lobster. Mains mains mascot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So we and and even if it was just a dachshund story, that would be complicated enough to try to draw the vectors and explain it clearly and 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 figure out that story. But there's also I mean, there's people are being like like chlorine is being sprayed in their faces sometimes. They're being trapped in in chambers with, cap, with chlorine. Oh chlorine. right, yeah, that's that yeah, that can be in the gaseous state. Chlorine can yeah, yeah make you feel like you're strangling yourself. Um, you know that happens. They got gassed. That was the that was the thing. Again, it was another one of those things that you're like, oh well, you know, Joe got gassed today. <laughs> right. Um, and it's, it's so just, matter of fact the way it comes <laughs> up in the character you think, Yeah. I mean, that's part of it too. Main people, as you know, are pretty matter of fact, and you know, we're not. Oh, that's not going to bother us. You know, I, I don't know. I'm still like that in some ways myself, to a, sure. to my detriment. But um, yeah, chlorine is not a good. The in fact, interestingly, the only book I um I only read one book in all my research that did not use paper made with chlorine. <laughs> And it was called Pandora's Poison, Chlorine Health and a New Environmental Strategy, because it was about how chlorine was such a Pandora's box of problems. And the book is like five inches thick. So that's the only book I've found that was not made with that with safer paper. Um, and mine is going to be made with um, paper not using chlorine. <laughs> I thought about the madness it must induce to be. Yeah, writing a book on paper, you know, realizing all the copies it's going to be produced and just like, oh, keep you up at night. But then even things like there was a moment where I – is in a moment when you and your husband are up there and you just happen to see, is it a train car coming into town that's full of rubber? Oh, yeah, yeah right. we we and were on just, this – yeah, there's rubber – no, rubber bits on the side of the road. Yes, oh, on the it's side like, of the road. That's right. Right. I was like, what's this? And we pick it up and my husband's like, looks like tires. I'm like, why? They're all shredded little bits. And we kept finding it. It was like Hansel and Gretel. We were following the tire bits. And um, we get to the bridge and we look over and there's just cars, train cars full of rubber tire. And my husband's like, I think they're going to the generator or whatever. So anyway, I think I broke my camera that day or something and then <laughs> forgot all about it until I got home. And I, I pulled, I was doing laundry and I found one of those tire bits in my pocket. And it, that's another whole, I mean, that could be an entire book. I don't, I, it was really hard. I think if you remember that chapter, it was very hard to me, for me to find answers about right. um, what's going on there. But the gist of it is, you know, they, they do burn tires to make fuel and, and they do it in a, a legal way. The mill's not doing mm-hmm. anything legal, illegal. Um, but tires, uh, they, they classified them at one point as a alternative fuel. I think that's what it was. Instead mm-hmm. of a solid waste. So when it's classified like that, there are different rules. And also, if you're burning fuels for your own business, like they're 
the mills burning it for themselves, not for the public, you know, grid, there also Mm -hmm. are different rules. So the rules, I tried to track them down, but it was like, it was like tracking down, uh, it was like tracking dioxin. (laughs) I don't know. It was, it was impossible. Um, so that's something I'd like to look at more closely and understand. I I mean, yeah, it remains kind of a ragged edge of the story. And I thought that was really telling because it's the more you dig, you more find all these, like, it doesn't seem great that we're just burning all these tires and there's no, there's no villain. That's really like, ha ha, I've, I've fooled you all. Because everyone's like, well, it's just time we do it, and it's just it's, you know, it's legal, and the companies are getting rid of the tires. It's you know, it's easier to give them to the mill than it is to dispose of them, like legally. Right? Yeah, and then and so, the main Department of Environmental Protection. I, you know, there's one woman there. Uh, I can't remember if she emailed or talked to me, but you know, she gave me all this regulatory language that you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good reader, and I used to mm-hmm. be a para- paralegal too, so I can read really well. But I could not understand and, you know, it would be like referred to section this. And so I'd go to section that and then I'd write down the notes or I'd paste, copy and paste it over here. And then I'd, I'd just try to follow that. It was like following a genogram too. It was like the whole, it was, it was crazy. I couldn't follow anything she said. So again, talk about an uninformed public. I mean, here's me spending, you know, 10 years looking at this stuff. What about the average person who gets up at, and goes to work from seven to three every day? Are they going to have time to do this? Like, you know, what choice do they really, who has time to do this? I didn't even have time to do it. Um, so I don't, you know, it's yeah, a problem. Yeah. And, 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 and it comes back to these stoic mainers and, and, and the mill workers and the people in your community. And, and you try to understand, you know, the cultural history that informs the, the way, you know, what people are carrying culturally into the, into the mill every day and, and, and around the mill. Um, and it takes you, you know, it's part of your genealogical research. It takes you to Prince Edward Island. It takes you to France. Um, so where, where are the threads that you're able to pull um, to get you, get you back to understanding how these people, who these people are that are working in these places and, and taking these risks? Um, to go back home. I mean, I went, I went back home to both look at the past and look at the present day people that were living there, are living there. So the past, meaning like Hugh Chisholm, who was the founder of our mill and the founder of International Paper. Uh, he, you know, he built our town from the tree up, basically. He, he, it was nothing. It was a little agricultural berg until he got there. And he, he was an industrialist, maybe even a robber baron. Um, he gave our town life. And, you know, he seemed like a very benevolent soul because he, he built, he built stores and banks and railroad. He did everything. It was like, it was like Monopoly or I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's not the right game, but he built everything, stores, schools, churches, housing, opportunities. You know, he, he was like our guardian and our benefactor, our boss, town father, everything. Um, even an inadvertent oppressor really in a way. And because, you know, but all that he did diverted criticism away from what he earned from our labor and what we lost eventually. I mean, if you go to Mexico and Rumford and you talk to, you know, he's still lauded to this day. People still really admire him. And, you know, it's funny. I don't know. So I, I looked at him and I looked at his, his history and I really tried to like figure out what kind of guy he was. But when, when the guy writing the history about him works for him, yeah, it's a little tricky to get a real take on 
who he was. So he's portrayed as benevolent and kind and he gave turkeys to everybody one Christmas. But he created this power structure in our town, I think, too, that um, still exists. I mean, he's an industrial paternalist. And I think that people still look at the mill as that, as the, as the, as the leader in a way. Hmm. And then you, you, at one point you say that, you know, you know his, his son inherits the business, is that right? And then, yeah. and they sell it off. And so the Chisholm family is no longer linked to Rumford in that, in that directly, right? And they're to the Correct. Mill. Right. Um, and so, and the, there's a moment in the book where you say there's almost that, you know, despite the, the certainly the, the many downsides of, of that paternalism, there's, there was a protection there that, that's then gone. And yeah. Are, so, right. Yeah. So the, so Chisholm gave it to his son who gave it to his son and then, it was William, the second son, sold it to a chemical company in Richmond, Virginia. And then they sold it. I can't remember the exact order. I might get it a little wrong. But the basic gist is this. They sold it to like a bigger company and then they sold it to a, you know, a corporation. And then it just got bigger and bigger and more sort of dispersed. And then now a company in China owns it. A company from China owns the mill. So it just kind of follows the same line as industry in America <laughs> a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. how, how it go- went from a human being own- owning it to somebody very, a very, very remote place um, owning mill. Although Chisholm never lived there either. So he was, it was always remote management from the start. Um, Do you think, so Nestle comes into town and we can talk more about that later, but Nestle comes in and makes a bid for for the water rights to the groundwater. And do you think that would have happened if if in the Chisholm era to have an outside company like that try to try to get the water? I think Nestle is just like the mill. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, that's why I find it so fascinating that everybody, you know, people there really want a sustainable future and they want to find out how they can make money. So Nestle comes to town and they do their little thing which is basically they come in and they say to these small towns, you know, we can help you, we can help you. And basically, really, they're only helping the water district, which is a semi-public, it's not even part of the town, but that's another whole thing. But they come in and they say, we can help you, we can help you. And everybody's just very desperate. And I can understand why they always say, yes, these small towns, I can understand it. They, you know, um, but... Chisholm, the the relationship between Chisholm and Nestle there, I think, is, you know, he made us dependent on something like that, you know? Mm. He didn't, he, he, he was there, it was three generations, and that just got into our, the social fabric of our town. I mean, there's a guy, 1994, Thomas Beckley, I think I wrote about him. He did a sociological examination of our town um, and of our dependence on Maine's forest-related industries, and he underlined that significance, how, how Chisholm's absent presence and how it pertained to the Nestle Pact. Um, like, he, he, he went and interviewed people in town. This is 1994. And he, you know, he would ask people mm-hmm. who they thought the leaders were in the town, and many people would say, I don't know who the leaders are, or somebody named leaders, and they would be like, I'm not the leader. The most common response to the question who the town's leaders was that there were no leaders. So it was like <laughs> this weird submissiveness and deference to the mill. And the mill had, you know, it was a very imbalanced uh, 
of power too. So, you know, that, that really set the stage for what's happening today. And I feel like with Nestle, it just frustrated me so much because I felt like, oh God, it's going to start all over again, except kind of worse. Like Nestle is just, you know, a huge corporation with like, you know, a deep bench of lawyers and people who can do things, whatever they want. So, you know, mm-hmm. at least Chisholm was, you know, Chisholm brought himself up by the bootstraps. Um, you know, so I think that also helped people have a little bit of, you know, connection with him too. He was an immigrant himself and, you know, he didn't come from money. He was, his father died when he was young and he, he basically was like selling vegetables or something for a while to help his mother as like a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old. So anyway, um, yeah. So Chisholm brings the story back to the turn of the 20th century, but you go deeper in time still. You go back to the 18th century and you tell us a sweeping narrative of the Acadian uh, you know, displacement and, and uh, diaspora. And so why is that important to understanding the story of Rumford in Mexico today? Um, first, there's a, there are a lot of Acadians living in that area in Maine. Uh, they all went to work in the factories in Maine, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, from Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, etc. The 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 Maritimes, basically. Um, and for one thing, I it was a story that I haven't really seen told much. I've seen you know I've read a lot of academic books about it, and there's some translated French books about it, but. The Acadian story just seemed like to be another story that hadn't been told too much. And I thought it was a good place to do it. And and in finding out about that story where, you know, the Acadians came over and first of all, they were here before the pilgrims um, in North America. And they they set up shop up, up, up in Canada in the maritime provinces. And they lived a pretty um, rough but... Um, generally happy, I guess, if you want to use that word, or if I want to use that word, life, until, you know, the, the, all the content, the, until the British basically, I, I got to make it short because it's a very long, complicated story. In <laughs> 1755, the British said, it's time for you to go. And they basically put them on ships, sent them adrift into all kinds of different places. Um, a lot of them died. They tore families apart. They burned down their homes. And uh, I just think that that kind of, um, I really think that that kind of voicelessness that they gave the Acadians, the Acadians also didn't, so they, there was never a place for them to go back to. That's what I was going to say. They left Acadia. And if you Google Acadia today, there is no place called Acadia, but people still call themselves Acadians. Um, So they had no home to go back to. So that was kind of part of another part of the reason why I really wanted to look at that, because looking at home as intensely as I was, I wanted to look at my ancestors' homes too. So I wanted to go to Prince Edward Island and I wanted to go back to France to those homes to try to understand um, the connections or how we got here, you know, how we got where we are. And I guess that's, yeah. How much I wonder does, does Catholicism matter in, in, in the experience of mill workers and, and, and their, the risks they took doing their work? Um, 
certainly, you know, in, in my hometown too, you know, it's, I, I was confused when I first learned that JFK was a controversial, you know, president because he was Catholic. <laughs> I was like, everyone's Catholic. I thought I'm so confused. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so funny. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I wonder, you know, but, but at the same time, whenever I see these polls of, 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 you know, American religiosity, Maine always ranks at or near the bottom as far as church going goes. And so, and you have a character named Father Sear in the book who's, who's, who's kind of, who you speak to about, about, about the risks that mill workers took. But, um, how, how big a factor is, you know, this isn't, this isn't a story where you have, you know, working class people clinging to guns and religion is, you know, in, the, in that malign Obama right. line. Um, it's, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I don't, it's probably not religious there today, but we grew up, we, it was pretty, I mean, we weren't religious. We went to church every week and, you know, I made my confirmation and communion. I did mm-hmm. all the things I, you know, did Same. everything I was supposed to do. Um, but the, the Catholic agenda, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people know, you know, it was, they were, we were disciplined and loyal and duty and family. Those were the tenets of Catholicism, right? You know, you, mm-hmm. which I think made, made them ripe for exploitation and, and employee as employees. And there was also, you know, with their history, wasn't that far behind as it is now, 1755, you know, it, I think that steeled, it steeled Acadians for some, maybe some of the unpleasant work. Plus, if you're just handing out good money, people will do almost anything for good wages. Look around. And people do it all the time still. <laughs> um, but the Catholicism too, you know, there's just, it, it's, it's, less, it's less to do with religion than it is to do with sort of how we were brought up and the belief beliefs that we had not in god necessarily but just in the way like the discipline the loyalty the duty the family the you know the i'll i'll just take it kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) and then i'll just confess or i'll just be absolved or whatever you know just everything was just like and father seer is actually great guy still good friends with our family um he um He's one priest I can get behind, for sure. <laughs> Shout out to Father Seer. Shout out to um, Father Seer. He'll love that. <laughs> a couple days ago, in the August 16th edition of the Portland Press-Herald, Maine's paper of record, if I can call it that, um, there's a feature on the book, um, which is which is exciting. Um, and it includes a quote from Rumford's <laughs> current director of economic development. Um, and, and as we've just gotten through saying here, there's a lot of history in this book. It's a history of the place. <laughs> History of the people and 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 their and their ancestors going way back and all over the world, um, and this director of economic development says this story, your book, um, is about the town of Rumford's past and not <laughs> and not and not our present or future, which is a fascinating claim. And I wondered how you'd reply to it. I would say if I, he was sitting here now, I say, "Have you read my book yet?" <laughs> <laughs> my guess is no, but if he did, I would have a conversation. Um, I mean, this is, first of all, the past determines our future, you know, as I've Mm -hmm. sort of been reiterating. um, It's one of the most important themes in the book. Also, I wonder how much he knows about toxics like dioxin. You know, if he he thinks that the past is past when it comes to toxic pollution, he's very wrong because it's very present in our bodies right now. Um, And, you know, I've since since that article came out, I've been inundated with emails from people that either live in the area now or from the area who just sending me their emails about their like long emails about all the cancer in their family 
from living in Rumford. Um, so if he thinks that's past, then he's, you know, it's, it's typical answer. And I expected it from, I don't know who I, I don't know this person, you know, it's expected. Nope. Nothing to see here. Moving on. You know, it's in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, he also said in that quote too, he said there has been a drastic reduction of, of, of pollution. And while that's true, you know, we, we've, there, like I said, the dioxin is a lot less. There are other things that are a lot less. The river's cleaner. I still would never eat a fish from it. But um, <laughs> if you look at the toxic release inventory uh, on the EPA's website, is our mill generated, I have the number here, 2,421,017 pounds of toxics last year. Um, I don't, I, I mean, okay, it's reduced, but that's still a lot of toxics. And, you know, what's interesting too, is that, um, a lot of the, a lot of the technology tends to, you know, we don't, it's not like the seventies where shit just went up in the sky and blew down river and, you know, it was everywhere and it was black and you could see it. This is, this is stuff you can't see again, invisible, deceitful kind of toxics. And, and I think some of the technology too, from some of the things I've read, it can keep the toxics more local, right? Yeah. So, um, because they're like, oh, we don't want to let it go down river, down to Lewiston, Auburn, but it keeps mm -hmm. it more local. And we happen to live in this little valley too, where it's, you know, things just circulate and circulate and circulate. Um, so reduction perhaps, but I also want to mention too that the TRI database that I got that number from, the toxic release inventory from the EPA's website, it's all self-reported. So there's nobody monitoring what they report. They're like, this is what we generated. And this is the kind of chemical, these are the kind of chemicals or toxics we generated. It's self-reported. Um, accidental releases aren't reported. Uh, yeah. So there's nobody really saying, nobody going to test anything. And I'm not saying they're doing anything illegal, the mill. I'm just saying, mm -hmm. why are we still allowed to generate 2,421,017 pounds of toxics into a town of like Mexico has like 2,000 people? I think there was some, I looked it up. It's in the book somewhere, but I guess that maybe it was in the 80s or the 90s. Our mill was polluting enough for some population of 12 million or something. I, I could mm. be wrong on that, but I'll, I'll try to and find it. it's a city it. of 9,000, right? Or town yeah, it was something kind of, at, at height, yeah, it was yeah. really kooky like that, something. So yeah, anyway. So what I would say to him is A, read the book, and then B, let's go have lunch. <laughs> and I will educate you. Or he could at least go pick up Thomas Beckley's study Um that's right there at town hall in the historical society. They have a copy Beckley. I emailed him. He gave me his only copy. I have it here and hmm. that's why I have it. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, it's just for him saying that it's just, it's just, that's such a silly thing for an economic development person to say, it's like, maybe we should look at this and, and understand really what's going on. And then maybe they'll get somewhere, but they just keep doing the same thing over and over. It's, it's bananas. Hmm. You return again and again in the book to depictions of an idealized Maine. Hmm. You know, the, it's the state you mentioned that we find in Thoreau's Maine woods. It's in E.B. White's writing. It's the state that's sold to consumers by L.L. Bean or to tourists with 
the vacation land slogan that's on our license plates and, and you know, <laughs> that you mentioned was concocted by the railroads, which I, it makes total sense. I never knew that, but a hundred years ago, the railroads came up with that one. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's this famously, there's the big blue sign is after when you get into on I-95 in Southern mm-hmm. Maine that says Maine, the way life should be. I, I think that went up in my lifetime. I remember my mom thinking that was very conceited. You know, it's not, we don't talk like that. At least we don't talk like that in public. Um, but, uh, but several people, um, several people you talk to, you know, in the, in the book suggest that the keys to Rumford's and Maine's post-industrial future is, you know, more recreational development and, and increased tourism. Um, and so I wonder, you know, do you see popular depictions of Maine as this, you know, idealized natural vacation land? Are, do you think those, oh, those depictions on balance help or hurt the people of the state? Oh, wow. What a complicated question. Um, <laughs> they, <laughs> they do, but I mean, certainly Maine is beautiful. I mean, the pictures yeah. you see are real. They're not, you know, they're, they're not <laughs> photoshopped. There's beautiful beaches and unpopulated forests and everything that Thoreau loved. And it's, you know, it, it's funny because exploiting that beauty has been going on, like you said, since the railroad, since they started bringing tourists there. And tourists is, tourism is a big industry, maybe even the biggest now in Maine. Um, so it doesn't hurt everyone, but it hurts people on the edges, right? Like the people mm-hmm. in my town are from Lewiston and Auburn. It can hurt them because it's easy to ignore or forget them if you're busy eating like lobster with blueberry cobbler on the coast somewhere. <laughs> Is that sarcastic? I mean, no, it's, no, no. <laughs> but you know, and then we have, I think for, think in my hometown, for instance, we have the, I don't know if you've seen the big Paul Bunyan there. Yes. He's huge. It's a monster size. <laughs> and it just, it kills me because he is, you know, they, he's celebrated. It's like this thing and people go to see him and he's at, he's, he lives at the information booth, which is the tourist information booth in Rumford, which I'm writing a whole um, another article on just this alone, this statue. Oh, but he, um, you know, he stands for he stands for logging and resource extraction, and he stands for like, you know, just clear cutting the wilderness. And we celebrate him like it's it's kind of bizarre um, that we celebrate that. Although they're celebrating him because like he's connected to the forest industries, the one that that we're dependent on, and the mill and the paper. But at the same time, we just, why, why can't we, why don't we look at him differently, you know? And, and that's something I'm trying to propose. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. But like, I would like to give context to some of these memorials and these statues and these myths around our town, you know? Let's really look at Paul Bunyan and what he did or a, an actual logger or, you know, and then Ed Muskie's memorial is just on the other side of the river. And it's this tiny little piece of, well, not tiny. It's, it looks like a gravestone. First of all, it's a piece of granite and it's across the river. And Ed Muskie was the guy who penned the clean water act and he's from Rumford. So we have this just crazy tension of Paul Bunyan overshadowing Muskie. And they, you know, they even had like a Paul Bunyan, not a Paul Bunyan, but like a logging celebration, you know, with Paul around Paul Bunyan, they had all these things and like axe throwing competitions and everything. But like, what do we do for Muskie? We put him on a piece of granite. It looks like a grave and they just put dates on it too. And I, you know, he did this, he was Senator, he did this, this. And then it was like, I can't remember what the, uh, I don't know. I have it written somewhere, but the, the, 
the etching that, you know, when he did the Clean Water Act, it was like three words or something. I thought, God, really? Um, you know, maybe we should celebrate that a little more. Or in the Acadians, too, there's a plaque on a rock next to the library, near the library. It's like down the street from this tiny little this plaque that talks about how all the Acadians came to Rumford. And that's kind of it. <laughs> I just like to reverse those, um, <laughs> the, reverse those myths a little bit and have, and put them in context, you know, like why, why are we, why are we, why are we celebrating the people that, and not the consequences of their work? Like maybe we ought to just put memorials up to like, here's is a toxic site and here's why. And like, and I know that sounds crazy and, and sarcastic, but in a way, I mean, if, if people are forced to look at it every day, like maybe this economic developer, if he was forced to look at some kind of site like that, then maybe it would just, you, you'd stop ignoring it, you know, yeah. whereas Paul Bunyan, you can't ignore cause he's so huge. Right. So if you put something else in its place that people can't ignore, maybe they'll recognize it. Maybe they'll finally accept it and then maybe do something about it. You mentioned Muskie, and I want to ask you about environmental politics. Um, first, I'd like to just name a few of the places in the book where you you mm. note and where I learned where where sort of capital P environmental politics, mainstream national politics came kind of coursing right through the center of town. And, and certainly one is Muskie, right? Muskie is uh, he's from Rumford. He dated your grandmother, apparently. Apparently. Um, that's what she said. Who knows if it's true? I, <laughs> I think I said allegedly. <laughs> We're going to report it as fact here on the show. Okay. Um, so <laughs> Muskie is he's the first Catholic uh, governor of Maine, and then he goes to goes to D.C. and he's you know, really really a key figure in in what we call the environmental decade of of this you know land, landmark um, watershed legislation um, over the course of, of his time there with people like Scoop Jackson and Gaylord Nelson. Um, and then you know and then and then there's also in the same in the 1970s also Ralph Nader's group puts together oh, a right. report. Uh, paper plantation published. I forgot to mention that. Yes. Uh, no, it's it's fascinating you know, about about the exploitation of Maine of of people and landscapes by by the lumber and paper industries. Um, and then there's and then there's Angus King, who's currently the senator. For, he currently holds Muskie's seat in the Maine in the Senate mm-hmm. in DC. Um, and he kind of coming up, he made his name for himself in, in, in Maine politics through conservation measures, especially things like the the bottle bill to get refunds on cans and bottles, and and then the billboard. You know, I'm always fascinated by. My dad was a little bit involved in this at the time, like to get get billboards banned in the state so you can right. highway you know travelers can enjoy the scenic sides of highways without vacation you know, art as they call it yeah <laughs> and so and and it's uh you know part of me hears that and it's you know this this, this really powerful political forces come in Maine and, and nationally um but also you know the king and others are doing this work while you know millions of tons of, of toxins are pumping out mm. of the mill and ending up in, in and so i wonder about you know, and, you, and then you had an experience when working on the book sort of fell into mm. an experience or I don't know how you'd characterize it, but you were not looking for to lead environmental act, action in your town while you were writing the book um, in your <laughs> own, own hometown. Um, and it's logistically hard when you're living out of state anyway. But the uh, but, I, you know, that was and you were doing work at the grassroots in response to Nestle's um, bid. And so I wonder, you know, do you have more faith in, in kind of local grassroots environmental politics than you do in sort of federal, national or mainstream kind of these big NGOs? Um and, or maybe another way of asking it is just people are going to read your book. Many of them are going to get very animated by it and, and concerned and thinking about mm. what do I do next? And so what, what would you like to see people do? Do you want them to donate to, you know, donate to national groups or do you want them to think about organizing in their own places where they live or, or something in between? I want them to vote. Okay. <laughs> I mean, All right. Really, here we go. 
That's really, I mean, legislative change is is critical. Vote for leaders that are going to do the right thing for the community, the environment, and who are going to appoint, who are going to appoint the best people. I mean, but my my other answer is, <laughs> you know, yes and no. Does you know this, this for me? I mean, you're saying, did did I have faith in these local politics and local movements? Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, I I I wouldn't ever consider myself an activist or. Uh, maybe I'm an accidental activist in that case. <laughs> I, I just, I went and I went with Rebecca Martin, who is Doc Martin, Terry Martin's daughter, who actually is an activist. And she helped kick a water company out of her town in Kingston, New York. And we both read the newspaper on the same day. And uh, it was an article that said something like, you know, Nestle's eyeing Rumford's water supply. So she emailed me and said, let's go. I want to show this movie and we'll give a talk and just let the people deal with it, you know, educate or give them knowledge, you know, because we care about this town. She knew I was writing about it, of course, through her mother. Um, so we went there and she's like, I can't, I can't do this. I have too much on my plate. And people said, people asked me, will you help? And I was like, okay, because I was there all the time anyway. Um, yeah. So um, so that aside, I think knowledge is important. Like I'm saying, you know, small towns, I don't know. Knowledge is important, but there's a fine line between educating and interfering, you know? Hmm. Um, hmm. I would, I'd rather not prescribe solutions for community where I don't live. Yeah. I don't, you know, I'm not a political organizer. Um, I situate myself more in the land of development aid, which is what I studied in Sweden, but I think there are parallels to development and activism, sort of like that tension between who's an outsider and who's an insider and the resulting discourse of that, which tends tends to be constructed around the superior donor, you know, in this case, that would be me, like the donor coming to help, you know, in contrast to the inadequate recipient or partner. They sometimes like to say partner, but it's really a recipient. <laughs> it's like a donor recipient huh. thing. I mean, that's the criticism of international aid or NGOs, like you were saying. Um, so it's usually those, those relationships are constructed like that. Um, you know, those liaisons can work obviously, but the, the, the way they work the best is as long as identity is situated in that. And I feel like at least, you know, situating identity, I mean, like the cultural differences should be seen and understood, right? Not mm -hmm. like somebody from away or somebody from that doesn't understand what it's like to live that life you know so at least I have that it was like in my case I have deep connections to the community the families the town my mother lived there relatives all my ancestors are buried there you know it wasn't like I, I swooped in or helicoptered in um, to just like help help the poor helpless people there or anything um, but it's a tricky dynamic to uh, between grassroots and outside help I mean they a lot of them were pretty resistant to outside help. I was allowed because I was from there, but other people were really not and were kind of pushed to the periphery, which also is really funny because a lot of the people that formed the core group of this were not actually from Rumford. They didn't, huh. not that, I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm just, I thought it was kind of ironic that they didn't grow up there and they were recent recent transplants. So it gets very complicated, right? Um, so, I mean, grassroots environmental politics can, can do something if they, again, if they can get people in seats of power that can help them. 
I think that's where it's at is voting, 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 like Michelle Obama's <laughs> necklace. Did you see that? We're, we're, we're talking. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> if, if somebody on Twitter said if you, if you can start, the campaign needs to start selling those now and make a lot of money. But a um, lot of money. So, <laughs> so I, like, to wrap things up, I you know, if all environmental horrors aside, which of course you can't do with this, with this story, <laughs> but if we could do that, um, there's still you know a major theme of the book um, is really a melancholic one, and I found myself quite kind of feeling it deeply reading the whole time. And it's this theme of, you know, you can't go home again. And you even, mm. you know, you even at one point you actually quote Thomas Wolfe directly. Right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you talk about, you have your deep, you have the deep ties from being there, but of course, I, you know, you can identify as being from there and then other people identify you differently. And there's a difference between being from someplace and living someplace. Right. And that's, it's right. constantly coming up in your interactions in the book with, with people that are living there now. Um, and it, it manifests itself in sort of, you know, awkward supermarket exchanges that I felt deeply, deeply familiar with. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but there's also, you know, be, to bring the environmental horrors back in, it's like physiologically, you and everyone who, who, who's lived there will always be from there, right? Because there will always be, you know, this, this toxic legacy that, you're, that, you, that you carry with you wherever you go. Um, right. And you can never sever those ties. And so I wonder, you know, spending so much time immersed in researching, you know, doing the things that other people don't have time to do, the people that live there, researching the history, um, writing this book make you feel more connected or more alienated from your hometown? Definitely more connected. Um, I thought about that um, for a long time. I mean, you know, even when I started writing this, people said, oh, this is really interesting. I don't know anything about this kind of place. You should write about it. I was like, no way. I did, that means I have to go there all the time and study it and be there. And I was there enough to see my parents, but I didn't want yeah. to go be there and understand it. And it was really, that was really not what I wanted to do. So, um, so I had that attitude, right? And, and, and so I even went into this, writing this with a little bit of that attitude. But the more I went back, um, the more I, and I think that kind of flips halfway through the book, I'm looking at the history but then it sort of changes, you know, um, midway through the book is that I'm looking at the present day, which is not what this economic developer is doing. I was looking at the history, seeing how it relates to the present day and then talking to people in the town and, you know, reconnecting with old friends like my friend Lisa, who teaches math and other teachers and people in the community I hadn't seen in a while. Terry, she's not living there, but she's from there. And even mm -hmm. connecting with my mother more on these kind of things, things we never talked about, right? I mean, she's great. Even, she's she's a good person, <laughs> but uh, so I yeah, I really did, and I I really felt just deeply affectionate towards the people. It doesn't not the place necessarily because the place, I mean, you know, it's it'll always be like home based, but the place still has so many problems. But the people there are are wonderful and, you know, very open and animated and, and, you know, hopeful, unbelievably so, really hopeful. I mean, I still go there to get my hair cut, although it's been since February because, <laughs> because of COVID. I do. I go get my hair cut there. The price has gone great. No, you mentioned that. They're yeah, great. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. plus I love, I love Heidi. Shout out to Heidi. Shout out to um, Heidi and Father Seer and your mom. Yep. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I don't feel alienated from it. Although I have to say the day I turned my final draft in, 
My mother calls me. I was in Texas at a writer's residency at 100 West Corsicana. And my mother calls and says, she's moving <laughs> like that day. What? I was like, wait, you didn't tell me. She's like, oh, I thought I told you, you know, no. So she, um, she left Rumford and, and moved to Freeport to be near my sister. And I haven't been back since. So I don't know what it'll be like to go back. It will be interesting oh. to see what that feels like. Um, yeah. Well, in the near term, you're going to be consumed with with uh, events talking about this book, and you're much in demand. And we're really grateful for your time today. But um, when when your schedule settles down a little bit, which might be months or years from now, I wonder if <laughs> if you have any previews of, of future projects you might you might want to turn to. Um, well, one thing I just have to finish up this month, and it's due the day my book is being published, is this grant project. I don't know if you saw that with um, Aaron Kayer from the architect. Uh, we got this grant. Aaron Kayer is from my hometown, and he teaches architecture at the University of New Mexico. We got this grant from the Architectural League of New York City, which commissioned 10 editorial teams to prepare reports on small to mid-sized communities and huh. consider things like economics, mobility, health, environment, race, class, spatial injustice, politics, and impacts of climate change. Anyway, I'm busy writing that. It's due the day my book comes out. Um, <laughs> and it's about Romford in Mexico, obviously. Um, but other than that, I'm, yeah, I'm writing about, I don't know, Michael Jordan. I'm writing about main, main guides. Uh, what am I? The working class. I. I would like to have. I'd like to reopen that discussion on class, and I'm not really sure where I'm going with that, but I would like to. I think, especially with the election forthcoming, yeah. or even after the election, the, the working class needs to be looked at a little more carefully. Um, I don't know. There's. A, I have like a million ideas, but yeah, I have to get through today, and then this week, and next week, and the month, and then this project that I have to finish up. But, um, <laughs> I have a lot of ideas. <laughs> well, the book again is Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains. It'll be published on September 1st by St. Martin's Press. Its author is Carrie Arsenal. Go pre-order your copy right now. Carrie, from one Androscoggin Valley kid to another, thank you so much for this book and for your time today. Thank you. So fun. <laughs> 